Welcome back to Feargenics, where we don't just watch movies, we devour them. I'm Kelton. And I'm Alex. And using our industry knowledge, we'll tell you everything you need to know about horror cinema, from classic to contemporary. Today, we're talking about Neon Demon, The Neon Demon, by Nicholas Winding Refn, a 2016 movie? Yep. It is uh, a assault on the eyes. Not, not an assault on the eyes. I should say it's... Uh, there's just a lot going on. It's very visual. It's an intense movie at times. If you have the sound turned up and you're sitting in front of a TV, you are sort of locked into this like feeling. It's not quite as overwhelming as um, like Enter the Void. The, the the score and the visuals on screen with the neon and the flashing lights, um, and and like you know the way the characters are acting, like they very they lend themselves to that with lots of scenes of just stillness. It's a visual masterpiece, not not masterpiece, but stylistic stylistically, yeah, they they really tried to make something beautiful, and they succeeded. Some of the shots in this are amazing, and like in a better movie would be iconic. Mm. I think it's very fitting for a movie that's about models and modeling in the industry to make something so visually appealing. When did you first first watch this movie? Did you watch it in theaters? I watched this, I think in 2016, like when Amazon acquired the distribution rights, I just watched it on Amazon Prime. Okay. I just kind of like found it and watched it. And my first watch, I I really liked it. Uh, just, you know, the whole package. I didn't really like analyze it or anything. I just kind of watched it. Um, and I walked away liking it. Same. I watched it. Uh, I, I believe on Amazon. Um, I think this movie had a simultaneous Amazon and theater release, which is pretty unusual in 2016 at least. Yeah, yeah. So I watched it on Amazon, and I, I was very pleasantly surprised. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot at the time. I'm curious if the simultaneous release had something to do with it being kind of a box office bust. Uh, had a budget of about $7 million. And the final reported box office total was around $3.7 million. I wonder if uh, people also just sort of associated it with being a low-budget movie because it was a digital release. In the same way you might uh, sort of scoff at, like, a big-budget Netflix movie. That is true. It, it's something to make note of that at this time, 2016, digital movies weren't really taking off yet. Obviously, Netflix existed in their space, and they were doing great. But Netflix kind of had a stranglehold on that market. And I feel like, you know, these these fledgling... Obviously, Amazon Video, you know, still sees the light of day-to-day and is successful. But at that time, it might have been judged in a different light, and that could have played a factor. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's easy to forget how much the pandemic shifted our viewing habits to VOD. Everybody wants to stream everything now. Yeah, a simultaneous release is a pretty new thing. I wonder if this movie was struggling to find a buyer, if maybe Amazon got a good deal. Yeah. Because I think they bought it out of uh, Cannes. Yeah, out of the, the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. It, it showed there in 2013. He uh, showed this movie alongside another film of his, actually, Only God Forgives, which both of them received cheers and boos. Very polarizing movie. The like IMDb reviews are reflective of that i feel like either people bought into this movie and and liked it and 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 saw the vision 
or they were just like, oh, this is this is like slow or weird. Like, I really think you liked it or you didn't. I think this movie really relies on sort of your mindset when watching the movie, because if you're there to sort of experience what's happening with the characters, I think you're into it. Um, because it's like intense and if you can like buy into the intensity and not be distracted by your thoughts or your phone or yeah if you've made time to watch this movie you're going to enjoy it but if you have anything else to do or you're thinking out you might just sort of clock out yeah like there's scenes where there's like just three minutes of beautiful shots i mean it's just panning and you know detail shots and beautiful the score is beautiful i love the music in this movie the uh, electronic synths and all of that. I really love the credits music as well. Right, it's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it's a it's a great song. Sia, it's, it's a Sia song, isn't it? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but it was like uh, it was on my 2016 winter playlist. I remember I nice. listened to it a lot. Yeah, it's a banger. Like the credit scene is is cool. To, it, this we should make note of this. The credit scene is pretty too. It's like a uh, I'm not sure which character, but it's someone walking in like a desert. And it's just beautiful shots of this, like, desert in the morning. It's a really, like, it's unusually nice is why we're bringing it up. It's yeah, it's, it's a it, really thoughtful credit sequence. At least let it roll for 30 seconds and look at it because it's, it's worth it. And I think that's sort of the the dichotomy, the struggle of this movie is because in many ways it's it's thoughtful and interesting. And you can tell there's a lot of love and attention poured into it. And in other ways as soon as you scratch the surface, there might not be anything there. Right. It's almost, you know, it kind of lends itself to the, the contents of the film, you know, being fashion, being superficial on the surface. On the surface, this movie is beautiful. On the surface, you know, if you judged, if you were to judge this book by its cover, you know, this movie by its cover, you know, by what it presents, it's a 10 out of 10. It's a perfect film, you know, but like once you go below the surface, it's, it's kind of a, I don't want to say generic, but it's like, there's not a lot to the story. I mean, it's, it's truly just a woman, uh, is vulnerable and preyed upon by outside forces. Yeah. She like gets chewed up and spit out by the system of Hollywood. Right. Cycles are a big theme of this film. And the cycle is on full display of how the industry will chew you up and spit you out, regardless of how talented you think you are, of how special or different you think you are from everyone else. You still are playing a role in a system that is bigger than yourself, and you cannot stay in this false sense of security that you've created for yourself forever. So uh, our movie starts off, and we have Jesse played by Ellie Fanning. One of her first big solo roles is like a dramatic actress. She's been in movies like Super 8, uh, but this is like definitely the first thing I've seen with her that's an adult film. Uh, She's 16 when this movie actually started filming. Turned 17 during production, and then by the time the movie was released, she turned 18. So, you know, she played the role of a innocent you know vulnerable young girl very well her character is 16 yeah she's only 16 so it was it was great casting there but jesse she arrives in los angeles totally alone uh she has no parents that we know of she mentions them briefly but they're not in the picture it starts off 
and she's on a couch with blood all over her. Immediately, we're getting these intense visuals. Yes, because we were seeing her through the strobe of a uh, camera. She, like somebody's taking photos of yeah, her. Yeah, she's getting a photo shoot done. And it looks like, well, at first you think it's a crime scene. You think she's dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just this intense sort of like flashing of like, <laughs> it's not gory, but like a little bit gory. It's like she, it looks like she slit her neck. Yeah, there's like blood all over her neck, like running down her shoulders. It's it's very like thick, like a lot of blood, but it's not like chunks or anything. Like it, it, it clearly looks kind of artificial. It's a really striking visual, and this sort of visual is indicative of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the movie, of something very striking. But, like, there's the strobing flashes are, like, a common thing in this movie where you see glimpses of something uh, horrifying. It's almost like this movie tries to blur the line between beauty and violence. Like, everything is beautiful, like, you know... This beautiful woman, though she's, like, been, you know, murdered as, as far as we can tell in this scene, like, it's still beautiful. Like, even even in this, the peak of ultraviolence, like, this is still a beautiful scene. Obviously, it goes on to reveal that it's just a photo shoot. It's just uh, some guy taking photos of her. Um, some random dude that she met online, actually, named Dean. And uh, she meets a makeup assistant after the photo shoot. She's wiping off the blood. Yeah, Ruby. Ruby. And um, Ruby befriends her and asks her if she wants to go to a party. And we get the sense that Ruby is the first person who's been friendly to Elle or Jesse. Jesse's very caught off guard by her being nice to her. Um, you know, it's almost like she's been in L.A. and has, has yet to see a friendly face. So she's very receptive of Ruby being nice to her. Uh, takes her up on the offer to go to the club. The club is interesting because it is so... We, we see the club from, from Jesse's perspective, and it's very intimidating for her to be there. Um, the whole time in the club, pretty much all we see is her standing by Ruby while Ruby talks to her friends. While there's, like, loud music bumping and, like, flashing lights still. And she's just getting stared at by a random stranger. And then from there, they head into the bathroom, and we meet two other women who, who Ruby's friends with. They're also models. One of them is named Sarah. One of them is named Gigi. We kind of get a sense that they're not here to be friends with Jesse. They start talking about, you know, being models, uh... They reference her beauty, how beautiful she is. They seem jealous. Yeah. Sarah references that she is old, but, you know, she's beautiful, but she's older. She's in her 30s. Um, and the other model, you know, she's beautiful too, but she's had work done. She's had plastic surgery. And they're envious. They're jealous of Jesse for being naturally beautiful without, you know, any effort. And she's almost... Um, confused like she can't understand why these women don't like her for no other reason other than the fact that she's beautiful this is almost her the first moment she realizes oh yes I am like I am beautiful as an asset almost yeah it's the first time she's seen what her beauty like how envious people of are of her beauty it's interesting how in this scene the uh, Ruby's friends are really intense about sort of criticizing Jesse, but Ruby stays quiet and it's a little unclear 
her thoughts on the matter. I think it's really interesting that a makeup artist is this character who's a little unclear on like where beauty lies because her job is to make people beautiful. Yeah, her job is innately taking something, you know, less beautiful and making it more beautiful through application of makeup. It's a really good choice for an ambiguous character. She plays the role of the character that, that muddies the line between like, this is beauty, this is not beauty, you know, allowing for that gray area. One thing to make note of here, at one point Ruby asks Jesse if she is food or if she is sex. This is a pretty important line, and I will refer back to it later on. Okay. Oh, I never really thought about it like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we will get to it later on. So from this scene, it's the next day. Jesse meets her agent in her office. Her agent, you know, speaks volumes about her, says she's destined for success in this industry. They're talking about the photos that she'd had taken in the beginning of the movie. Funnily enough, the the agent calls the photos amateur hour. Uh, and what's funny is when you can see, when you see the photos, they are amateur hour. The set, it was beautiful that you saw, like... The cinematography of the movie it was not amateur hour, and it portrayed everything very yeah, well. It, but it, seeing the uh, universe, like photos, he managed to make that look bad. Yeah, it's it's this point where we come to realize that Jesse hasn't finished high school yet; she's a minor, and it's at this point where we start to see the the problems in this industry. Uh, the agent immediately is is telling Jesse, you know, tell people that you're 19 because 18 is too on the nose. You know, someone in a profession telling you to lie about your age. It sort of sets Jesse up for the abuse she's going to get later on. Like, this is, she makes the decision here. You have her, her agent telling her, like, you got to act 19, and the implication here is because, like, you're going to be treated sexually, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty clear implication. Yeah. And she agrees to it. She says yes, and she's entering the system. It's kind of laid bare to, for her what's in store. And she says yes. And, and clearly, you know, there's not a lot of internal dialogue revealed with Jesse, but we can assume that she's a desperate model just trying to make it and you know the moment that someone tells you that you're destined for success you're not going to just write all that off you know because you you your moral compass you know and, and obviously her moral compass was set aside so that she could seek that success and that that builds upon itself more and more throughout the film that moral compass becomes less and less a part of her mind and success becomes the dominating, driving force of her character, and we see her devolve. We see her start to become the other women she's afraid of. Exactly. She is consumed by the industry without her knowledge. It's at this same meeting that the agent sets her up with another photographer, Jack. He is huge in this scene. All the women who work with Jack are successful. Uh, He's just, you know, he's pony boy of photographers in Los Angeles. And then she leaves. She goes, meets Dean uh, outside. Turns out they're dating or going on a date. Yeah, they're going on a date. And, uh, you know, Dean's like, what'd they think of the photos? There's not a lot of comedy in this, but, like, that was hilarious. (laughs) Like, 
<laughs> he just gets his stuff shat on, and she's like, oh, just didn't, we didn't talk about it. I'm sorry. He's, it, oh, it's like cool. awkward, yeah. <laughs> yeah. His whole character is so awkward. He So he like sort of, whatever him and uh, Jesse's relationship is, it's established before she like sort of starts her downfall in a way. So like he's like kind of the last pure character we see. Yeah, he's he's almost representing, and and that's that's something to keep note of. Like he's the first character we meet besides her. So like they're together in the beginning. That is basically all she has left of her, her first self that we see in the beginning of the movie. Like that's the only character that knows of Jesse as a young innocent girl. As we continue through the date, though, I think I lose a little bit of sympathy for him because they go out to eat. and the, Well, they don't go out to eat. They go out to, they like go out a, to a ridge. A ridge. And we have this sort of weirdly long scene of her just standing on the ridge. And him just kind of like sitting back. Yeah. And we like follow her. Uh, we see a shot of her, like a medium wide shot of her walking back and forth on the ridge. We look at him and we cut back to her and all the lighting's changed. Oh, I never noticed that. Yeah, it was kind of a weird. Uh, it was kind of a weird edit, and I couldn't tell if it meant something. Right. Yeah, I didn't catch that. But as they start talking, he discovers what her actual age is, sixteen, and he decides that's okay. And, and yeah, this is where Dean is a questionable character moving forward. And then that's that scene's over. They they head back. She's heading back to her motel room, and you know, opens the door. And she sees the windows open, and she sees some movement in the corner of the room next to her bed. And she screams, runs away, and goes and gets the manager of the motel. And this is where we get to meet Keanu Reeves. Love me some Keanu Reeves. He looks really good in this. Is this, uh, this is post-John Wick 1? Mm-hmm. But it's around the same time, so he's, like, sort of, like... He's just on the come-up of being badass cool Keanu. Yeah. Like, we all know Keanu is epic cyberpunk guy now, obviously, but pre-2016, Keanu was yet to be that cool. He was cool, but not, like, cool. He, he'd been quiet for quite a while, and then he just sort of started popping back up. Anyways, grabs Keanu real quick, and he goes to go check it out. Now, we don't get a sense. He's not a good guy. Like, she has to, like, really push him to come help her. Yeah, no, he's an asshole about it. And you get a sense also at this point that he's maybe also being predatory to young women coming to Hollywood. Yeah, he's he's very abrasive. It's like he's had this conversation a thousand times. You know, he's just, he's tired of hearing these young girls coming into his office and complaining about stuff. He only helps her because uh, she's going to call the cops, if I recall. Yeah. So, uh... He grabs one of his buddies, one of his lackeys, and... Uh, who you told me is Skinny Pete from Breaking Bad. It is Skinny Pete. Yeah, so Charles Baker, the actor who plays Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad, he has a little cameo in this, and he's carrying a bat, and he's hanging out with Keanu. I'm just, I'm just saying, that's a powerful duo. If they got their own movie, that's all I'm saying. Maybe we'll get Keanu in Breaking Bad at some point. Maybe we already did. Maybe we just didn't notice. Oh, yeah, as Jesse. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so, make it to the door. Door's locked. So, he has skinny Pete knock the door down. I like how he tries for all of five seconds to unlock yeah, the door. Yeah, it's just like, that, it was the most, like, obvious acting 
in the entire movie. He's just like kind of jingling the the doorknob, and he's just like get the door. And then uh, you know, Charles Baker knocks the door down, and then we see a mountain lion in her room. Now, this is California. Mountain lions exist in California, but you know it's like hmm, a little fishy. It's like how did this how did this happen? Now we'll we'll go back to we'll go back to an explanation for this later. Will we? We will. Because I just wrote it off as a, like a metaphor, but I, I, there's, there's like one some word in world logic here. There's a single word that I'm going to drop at the end of this, and I will explain all these little events that led up to the end. Okay, okay. I was ready to just tell the audience that like. You know, some things are unexplained, but I guess we're going to get I, the truth I, of the matter. I want to I wanna tell you what the answer is, but I, ca I can't just yet. I okay. have, we have to keep going. So, with tremendous effort, Keanu Reeves gets the mountain lion out of the room. Off screen. We don't get to see him wrestle a mountain yeah, lion. Yeah, he, he bitches about it later, how hard it was to get it out of there. But, it, it, you know, we don't see it. Mountain lion's dealt with, and uh, this is the point in which she goes to meet Jack the photographer that the agent set her up with. And this is a pretty weird sequence, this whole Jack introduction. Yes. This is where we see, like, a very, almost what you were referring to earlier, of agreeing to tell people she's 19, bringing in the potential of having to do sexual things in the industry to succeed. It, it, it comes into full fruition. Jack basically just has her strip. Uh, he closes the set, has everyone leave. Makes her take all her clothes off. He's, I also want to just mention, he's like the first like man really that we've interacted with. Who's not um, the Jesse's boyfriend photographer. And like the way this movie presents men as sort of this like crazily powerful force in the industry. Yeah. Like there's this sort of untouchable thing about him and everybody is sort of skittish. And we see this again later yeah. with other characters, but like, he just seems so powerful in the scene and like anything he tells somebody to do, they have to do. It almost feels they're creating an environment where this guy controls whether or not they make it in this industry. And that's like a, that's a really strange dynamic to be in, especially in what can, can be considered a workplace. They're just at work. It really hammers home the dynamic that, Jesse and all these women have to go through. They have to achieve some sort of intangible perfection that gets approval from somebody like Jack. Yeah, like they're, they need someone else to assign them the value that they have. And what's so frustrating uh, about Jesse to every other character is that they don't know what that thing is that she's got. Yeah, I mean, she's just a kid. The truth is she's she's 16 and everybody else is older. And they, they are treating her like an adult. And this, I wonder if this is like one of the core things is like everybody in Hollywood is a predator. They actually like her just because she's young. The photo shoot goes by swimmingly. Now it's worth noting, like it's just photos. There's no like sex or anything. But later, later on in the film, Ruby and the girls kind of think that maybe something went on between them and Jack for her to be a favorite of his. Obviously, it's not true, but, you know, this is just another another example of the jealousy and the envy that they have. They're just trying to find a reason for why she is above them. 
Yeah, they assume that she slept with him, which I, I didn't get the impression she did. Yeah, it, it was just a photo shoot. After the photo shoot, she exchanges her number with Ruby. They have a little conversation. And she's uh, she basically, you know, reaches her arm out and is like, anything you need, you know, any help you need, just come talk to me. You have my number. And they part ways. After a quick scene of Ruby and the other models talking about her success in the photo shoot with Jack, we get to a scene of Jesse and Sarah auditioning for the same exact show for a, you know, another hotshot male in the industry named Robert who puts on these fashion shows. This scene is really um, striking because everybody is in their underwear. And uh, a lot of the movie's dark, but this is a very bright scene. It's like very even lighting. And you have all these women in their underwear, like competing, standing in lines and taking turns, watching each other walk down a runway. Yeah, it's almost like all these women are here as like cattle or something. Like they're, they're just, you know, a bunch of beautiful women in a room. Yeah, like they, they're sort of stripped away of everything like they don't get to carry a purse or their phone their individuality is essentially like take it away from them and and this is a kind of like uh you know symbolizing the way that the industry treats sees these women is you know their you know their thoughts and dreams fall away whenever you know they're just not pretty enough to be in the show like it is such a vain and superficial line that they're drawing that it almost feels like it's so lacking of empathy. So the audition continues and Robert immediately keys in on Jesse. And it's very obvious that she prefers Jesse over the other uh, model there that she, she met earlier, Sarah. There's uh, so when Jesse was selected though, there, there's the guy who's uh, do you know what was the character's name? Robert, the, Robert, Robert is not even watching the other models. We watch Sarah walk and Robert is not watching at all. Literally ignoring her. Yeah. It's, he could not even be bothered to look up from whatever he was fucking with in his hand. And then when Jesse comes up, he doesn't even like, he completely stops everything he's doing and like intensely watches her. That there is, no, like, moment where he realizes she's the one. As soon as he spots her, she's the one. She doesn't even have to walk to be picked. And everybody can see that. The the disparity between how he judges her compared to everyone else is so glaringly obvious. And this is just too much for Sarah to, to deal with. Goes into the bathroom and breaks a mirror in frustration. And um, Jesse finds... Sarah in the bathroom, mirrors broken, photos on the floor, ripped up. It's at this point where we get we start to finally get some horror elements mixed in. Uh, she cuts her hand on the mirror, the pieces, when she's in the bathroom with Sarah comforting her. And Sarah just asks to see her hand. And she's like, okay, and holds her hand out. And she just grabs her arm and starts licking the blood off of her hand. I can't, I can't tell you, I can't tell you yet. 
why this is why why it's happening. But we're starting to see what Sarah is. Hungry. She's hungry. She's she's hungry for uh hungry for success. Yeah. She runs back to her motel room and tries to fix her hand in uh, you know, a frantic effort. And right whenever she answers the door to see who it was, it was Dean holding a bunch of flowers. Yeah, she's here knocking at her door as she's trying to fix her hand. Yeah, and uh, she opens the door and she just immediately faints. Yeah, she grabs the flowers and falls back and faints. And it's like a really beautiful shot, like the way she falls back. It's a lot of melodrama. Like this was just beautiful for the sake of being beautiful. Yeah, that's a lot of this movie. Like we haven't described a lot of distinctly horror elements here, but a lot of what we're talking about is being presented uh, in a very frightening way. It's cold. This movie has a very cold tone to it. There's, there's, there's no comfort. Like never at any point do you feel like, oh, this character is at a point of safety. They can chill out. It, it always just feels like Jesse is in the woods at night with wolves everywhere. Yeah. Trying to fucking survive. And the only person who seems nice to her is Ruby. And the photographer and guy. Dean, but for weird reasons. Yeah. They have a little conversation after she comes to, and it's at this point Dean goes to pay for the damages for the room uh, because of the mountain lion to, to Hank. And uh, the, the, the interaction here is pretty funny. Basically, Hank calls him out for being a creep. Yeah, so the, Hank is the Keanu Reeves character. Yeah, Keanu Reeves, Hank, the the manager of the motel. Um, after Dean comes up to pay for the damages, he makes a lot of references to... He, he, re, he specifically references another 13-year-old girl calling it real Lolita shit. More or less calling Dean a pedophile, saying, oh, yeah, there's another chick in this other room that you could, you could you know, try your luck with. Yeah, like he knows that if you're dating anybody in this apartment complex, you're basically a pedophile. Yeah. He eventually takes like 140 bucks from Dean for the room. Yeah, he takes, but you can tell that like, you know, the expenses here are really made up. And yeah. like, he's just trying to get whatever money he can get out of Dean. Yeah, he's like, oh, for the door and labor, at least 100 bucks. You know, like a hundred bucks. The door that he kicked down because he couldn't be <laughs> bothered to unlock it normally. You think that this guy is paying a lot of money for his motel in the first place? No. So the audition from earlier, Jesse ended up being the the headliner, I guess you'd say, like the front person, the the main person in the show. Well, yeah, who is actually the last person. The last person to go is sort of like the big person. Yeah, right. Like uh, she's just... You know, the, the special star of the show, essentially. And you can see it in the outfits. Everybody's outfits are, like, you know, extravagant in a fashion show sort of way. But um, Jesse's is a real head turner. This is a pretty important scene uh, whenever she walks out. This is the moment where we see a shift in Jesse. This is where she fully begins to understand that she is different than everyone else. She, she has that X factor. She is beautiful. But it's, it's almost to a negative degree. She becomes very self-absorbed and egotistical. And you see this happen uh, because as she's walking out, 
she's got her eyes on this um, triangle in the corner of the room. It's just like some light set up. But we're flashing between her seeing her and what she's looking at back and forth with the lights flashing and the music flashing. And as she approaches it, it becomes like this mirror almost. And she can see herself in the reflections and we're flashing between her like presence on the stage and her like mental state. And when it flashes red, you see like what she's thinking about. She's looking at herself in the mirror and she like, she kisses herself. Mirrors are a big theme in this movie. And that's uh, representative of narcissism, you know, staring at yourself in the mirror. And she's like kissing herself in the mirror, obviously. And it's like she falls in love with herself. Like it's at this moment where Jesse, she stops seeking others approval and finds approval in herself and carries that through the entire film. It's a pretty big, abrupt change. Like, that scene going forward, she is the new yeah. Jesse. The scene immediately after that, we see a brand new Jesse. She goes to dinner with Dean, and Robert is there with Sarah and another girl having dinner. And there's not enough space for her and Dean, so they go to a different table. There's another example of, you know, men being assholes like controlling forces in this industry where Robert essentially uses it might be Gigi I'm not sure if it's Gigi or Sarah but he uses the one of the girls and he kind of just stands her up one of the girls the girl who seems to be the most powerful as well like yeah this woman has been a real force so far in the movie only to be used as an example by this dude yeah he basically has her stand up and asks Dean you know, is this, you know, is this girl beautiful? And his response is, you know, she's fine. He's kind of caught off guard. He doesn't really know. Dean's being nice. Yeah, he, he he doesn't know what to say. He's on the spot. And then Robert's like, oh, yeah, she's fine. The ironic thing here is, like, she's literally a model. She's, like, very beautiful. Yeah. And, like, Dean is, like, very much underselling it. But, like, he's just trying to, like, get the, yeah. get the, the time to pass. He's not even trying to engage yeah. in this conversation. And Robert's like, oh, yeah, she's fine, you know, and and then points out Jesse, like, look at this. This is what beauty is. This is natural beauty. And Dean's not having this. And he kind of turns to Jesse and is like, you know, do you want to go? Like, can we go? Or no, he says, like, uh, I want to go. And then she just goes. So go. And that is the confirmation that Jesse is no longer this this innocent girl she's she doesn't care that you know what's going on right now is is shitty she's in for the ride you get a sense that she actually enjoys this moment too because this woman has been so hard on jesse she's reveling in it yeah once again i just want to point out that i think the it factor that like the subtext here is just youth like what she's got that all the men in this movie see is just that she's the youngest person in the room like, the fact that she's so beautiful is, like, not even, like, they're making it more than what it is. Like, they're, all the women in, in this movie are beautiful. Every single one. Like, there is not a single unattractive female in the Neon Demon. But we're, we're constantly drilled into our heads, oh, this is the only pretty girl in the movie. And I don't think it's that subtle. Like, 
the hotel being just for minors, I think is really like Nicholas Winding Refn being like, this is the, that vague sense of beauty that everybody's trying to hit. It's just youth. Yeah. So she gets back to her motel room and she's asleep. And then all of a sudden Keanu Reeves breaks in. He sneaks into her room. He's got a knife in her mouth and boom, she wakes up just a bad dream. Or was it? She wakes up on the floor, passed out. I think it was a bad dream. Okay, yeah, it was a it was a bad dream. The or was it is referring to the thing that I'm going to talk about. I see. After she wakes up, she hears next door uh, screaming from another girl. Somebody was jiggling on her door. Yeah, yeah. Somebody tried to get and in, locked it real quick, and then that person moves on and jiggles on the next door and gets in. Yeah. And she's hearing screaming. And this is what prompts her to call Ruby uh, for help. And eventually, uh, she makes her way to Ruby's house. It's the Paramore Mansion. Uh, It's a haunted mansion. I didn't know that. Yep. That's cool. They shot at the Paramore Mansion. She makes it there and, you know, gets, takes a shower, is, you know, getting ready for bed. And and Ruby makes a move on her. It, It was... It was pretty obvious, you know, throughout the entire movie that Ruby kind of had a thing for Jesse. And it's at this point where she makes a move on her. And Jesse's not into it. Yeah. And Ruby gets kind of like pushy about it, tries again, and Jesse turns her down. And this was a pretty big moment. I I will explain what this means later, but this is the moment where she sealed her fate as food and not sex. It's also horrifying because Ruby was the last person who could maybe be friends with Jesse and to find out that she, just like all the men, just wanted to fuck her. Yeah. It was so defeating. The men had been painted as predators this entire film and we come to find out that the women are just as much predators as the men. After this, Ruby goes to work at the morgue. Uh, We get a... Very gratuitous necrophilia scene where she is a vision, like envisioning that it's Jesse on the table, not a dead body. Uh, there was a lot of booze at Cannes for this. This is where the booze came from. I see. Who goes to Cannes and then like booze the film? Like this is like an intense fucked up scene, but like, come on, you're at a indie film fest. Like, like men was at a film festival, wasn't it? Like, did, no, did anyone boo men? I'm sure plenty did, but like... Like, it's, film. Yeah, it's film like ex- specifically this is probably experimental film since you're watching it at there's a film stuff festival. that's banned in countries that people watch just let it play just, just don't boo a movie especially cans i don't know maybe at cans they just like you're at cans so they're feel entitled to be you know loud and share their opinion but we're approaching the end of the film now ruby comes home and finds jesse on the diving board of her pool, empty pool, you know, standing. It, it's it, This is, like, almost her scene of, like, becoming a goddess. Like, becoming the the perfection. You know, she is she's achieved peak. She is to be feared by these women now. So, Ruby comes home. Jesse is on the diving board of an empty pool. And Ruby, instead of walking around the pool to talk to Jesse, walks into the pool. So, she's standing at the bottom of, like... I don't know, maybe a 10-foot, 11-foot pool looking up at Jesse. And Jesse delivers this really narcissistic line. Um, I don't remember what it is specifically, but it's about, like, she suddenly understands why everybody wants to be her. 
And it's like, it's a real like villain moment for Jesse. Yeah, no, she says, um, I think she says something along the lines of like, everyone's trying to be a second rate version of me. Mm, yeah. Like this whole time, the, the entire movie, she was trying to become one of these women. And she realizes, oh, they're just trying to be me. She didn't need to try the entire time. They have this conversation, and she walks off, sees Gigi and Sarah in the mansion, and uh, they attack her. They chase her down. There's a, there's a chase scene that ensues. It ends with them back at the pool outside, and they corner her, all three of them. She's up against the edge of the pool. She's outside of the pool, back to the pool. Yeah, back to the pool, the empty pool. And uh, push comes to shove, and she literally gets pushed. Yeah, she gets pushed into the pool and falls. Breaks her legs. And arms. She's like a heap. It's an absolutely terrible sort of scene. It's pretty gruesome. She's like, doesn't even say anything. She's just laying there breathing. Yeah, if it didn't happen to the main character, you would just assume they were dead. Because it happens to the main character, you're sort of a little bit more like, What's going to happen? Yeah, you're like shell-shocked almost. And then, boom, jump cut. Ruby's in a bathtub full of blood. A few seconds later, we see Gigi and Sarah washing off blood in the shower. These are Carrie references, by the way. There's uh, the bloody bathtub scene and the washing blood off. That's that's a loose loose Carrie reference, I believe. But um, this is kind of where things go off the rails. Obviously, things have already gone off the rails, but... Gets a little weirder from this point on. Even weirder than bathing in blood. And the implication being it's Jesse's blood. And then we get, you know, Ruby topless gardening scene. And it cuts to her laying in a shallow grave. Oh, yeah. It was a really beautiful shot as well. And they, they hold on that for a while. They're pretty proud of that shot. And then we get uh, some more scenes. We get Ruby laying under the moon. And blood oozing out like a fountain. From Yeah, from between her legs. Yeah. It's almost, it seems ritualistic. Yeah. So the, the scene is, she's in a big empty room in the mansion. And there's these full floor-to-ceiling windows. And you can just see a big full moon taking up the majority of the top half of the window. Mm. And she lays down in the sunlight, opens her legs... And blood just gushes out. It's so out. much. It's like gallons just flowing out. And uh, from there, we go to Sarah and Gigi riding in a nice sports car going real fast. And they're on their way to a shoot with Jack. They go to this new shoot, and there's a new girl there. And it comes up about, uh, you know, a new girl coming into the scene and and taking the reins if you will. And Sarah is asked like, what, you know, what did you do about that? And she goes, I ate her. It's one of those, uh, like it's the second funny moment of the film. It's so like on the nose, like, yeah, you did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It sounds like she's being hyperbolic, but But she's not literally had consumed the girl that was going to take her job. And they go out and they're doing the shoot and Gigi starts feeling uncomfortable you know her stomach starts hurting so she runs off and she's just in another room heaving dry heaving and sarah comes and looks for her 
and finds her as she's heaving. And uh, she throws up. She pukes up uh, an eyeball, you know, consumes Jesse's eye. Pretty gross. Yeah. It's like really like realistic. Like she just like, bleh, and then there's an eye. It's uh, it's realistic, but it's also so stylized because she like crawls into the middle of the room. Bleh, and, and it's, it's like, like perfectly like laying there. Yeah, just, it's like first a pile of meat and then the eye just plops right on top yeah. and it's staring forward. It's like hyper realistic in yeah. a way. After that, she grabs the closest pair of scissors she can and tries to cut the rest of Jesse out of her. Yeah, she's like, I want her out of me. Yeah. And stabs herself and just like rips down her stomach. And then the final scene, Sarah just reaches down, fully lacking any empathy, and grabs the eye, pops it in her mouth like an Utz cheese puff, and goes on back to the shoot. And that's the film. That's Neon Demon. So what does it mean? Well, it depends. There's a pretty literal meaning to this film. But there's also a very metaphorical meaning. Now, the, the literal meaning, you know, they're just witches. It's just witch shit. The, the food or sex thing was them asking, are you food? Are we going to consume you and harvest your youth? Or are you sex? Like, can we copulate and use the power that you generate to power us? It, it was hinted at her being food. She's too sweet. She became food whenever she refused to have sex with Ruby. Yes. She was no longer useful to them in any other way other than consuming her life force. The bad dreams were projections. That's witch shit. They just make you have bad dreams to prompt you to do things. So mm. they and they put that vision of Hank walking in, that all that noise, as far as we're concerned, none of that was real. All of that was existing so that she would call Ruby. She gave her that number because they were going to continue to manipulate her until she came to them. She never had a choice. I really like that. Is there any, is there any like... The mountain scene? lion was a shape-shifting thing. That was probably Ruby. Oh, uh, okay. Is That's there, a witch thing. Is there any sort of thing that they, like, do we ever see them doing this? Like, we see everything from Jesse's perspective, but do we ever get a glimpse of them, like, doing something supernatural at all no that's the thing that's why it's that's why it's cool because like none of it is explicitly told to you in the film but it's not a stretch like you're saying it's it's very ritualistic with the moon like that that is like like they did some sort of moon ritual and like that but the blood leaving her was jesse's blood like that completed the ritual like they consumed the life essence once it had been consumed and had been expelled from the body. That was all part of their witch, their witchcraftery. So that's the literal meaning, right? Like, like that's, you could assume that they're just witches and it was witch shit. So, but like, there is a ton of metaphorical meaning to take away from this movie that's worth addressing. Cycles are such an important aspect of this movie. You know, the, the moonlight scene, like the moon cycle. The moon is referenced several times. Yeah, yeah. The fashion industry in and of itself is a cycle. A young budding star comes in and is chewed up and is spit out by the industry. 
and a new one comes in to take her place. Sarah eating that eye was symbolizing like there's always going to be someone to prey upon. There's always going to be a predator. There's always going to be someone trying to get ahead. Even after all this happened, Sarah still just wants to get ahead. She doesn't care that Jesse died or her friend died. She still sees success and the potential of success. And that cycle of chasing success and and chasing stardom will always take precedent over the individuals and what they do. While Jesse could have been very successful and prominent in her career, she decided to become the best. And trying to become the best creates enemies. She couldn't find a niche where she could exist as a successful model. She had to be the best model, and it consumed her. She decided to sort of become a wolf, and then she got consumed by other wolves. Yeah. There's not really like a good way to walk away from this movie, I feel like. It's just it's just kind of like very objective and it's the way it portrays um, its themes. And it's like it's kind of sad. Like it's just damn, that really is how it be. Like that's that's the takeaway from it. Yeah. It's such a dark perspective on Hollywood and modeling in general. Yeah. It's a dark movie. I mean, like even the themes like like pedophilia in a film is not something that you is touched on a lot. Like you're already putting your movie into a category of like, man, you can't really watch this. Like in most, you're not going to watch this as some stupid horror movie to put on, you know? Yeah. And people are booing at necrophilia should have been booing the whole movie. (laughs) Yeah. This film was dedicated to Nicholas Winning Refn's wife. And it was one of the only films she's liked that he's made. I don't know what to take away from that. (laughs) But in a way, you know, out of all of his films, I think this one's my favorite. Uh, uh, Hey, at least, at least you and his wife can share the opinion that Drive sucks. (laughs) Drive doesn't suck. It just (laughs) isn't, it isn't like a worthwhile must watch. It's fine if you have two hours to kill. (sighs) Well, that's Neon Demon. This is the first movie we've watched that is not an obvious recommendation. Uh, I don't think anybody is going to have this on a top ten list of most important films of all time. I agree. Most important horror films. I agree. Um, It doesn't define a genre. The music is great. It's such an... It's a unique film, but it it can easily just get lost. Yeah, I I kind of feel the same way. It's nothing it's nothing special. It's well executed. I will say that. Visually, the story is cohesive. Like there's there's nothing fundamentally flawed with this film. There's nothing that I can point out as being problems with it. But it's also not something I would Rec, you know, you don't need to watch this. Like, if you like horror that's, like, not in your face and it's kind of just creepy and unsettling and you're just kind of, like, moving through this world that's off kilter, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun little movie. 
One of the storytelling aspects of this movie that I like, and you see this occasionally, you also see this in Black Swan, is at some point you disconnect from the character and you realize the character doesn't see the world the same way you as the viewer do. And that's kind of unsettling because you no longer know if the main character is trustworthy. Is trustworthy. And you really do feel like you can't trust Jesse after that scene with the mirrors and stuff. Yeah, in in a way, her being pushed into the pool isn't the saddest thing that could happen. It's, yeah. it's like you're sad because you're attached to her, but it's not like at the same time, you're like, okay, she just delivered the douchiest line of the movie. They created the circumstances in the film to justify her death. There were no good characters in this movie. There was no good guy. Everyone was bad in their own way. It's it's kind of like depressing to think about, yeah. you know, rewatching it and like realizing literally everyone has something wrong with them. You know, so I can't recommend necessarily the movie super strongly, but I can recommend the movie soundtrack. So whatever uh, whatever music player you use, go look up the Neon Demon soundtrack. I'm sure somebody's made a playlist. I'm actually going to do this because I want to listen to it in full. It's it's great. I really wish they made like an like a visual, like you know. Obviously, they were making a movie, so there was more important shit to do. But imagine if they just made like a visualizer, in the style of Neon Demon with mm-hmm. the cool neon. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can do something like that for this episode. Oh, that'd be sick. So just to be clear, thumbs up, thumbs down. Where are you at? I'm right in the middle, man. Like I can't say it's a bad movie. Like, there's, it's not because it's not a bad movie. But it's not like anything special. Like it, it, it's just a pretty good movie, well executed, pretty good cast, visually, uh, very enthralling, beautiful film. If if you like neon, if you like cool neon, it's it's worth watching. And if you like uh, pretty synths, like nice electronic music, you know that that's in there. But like that's about it. Like it's just a it's a horror movie. It's horrifying in uh in the same way like Whiplash is horrifying. Like you have like just this pressure on an individual and it's good but you have to be in the mood for that kind of intensity and it doesn't always hold up on multiple rewatches because yeah. you know where it's going to go. Yeah, that's the big thing. Watching this once was way better than watching it a second time. I loved watching this movie the first time. I think if I didn't go back and watch it again, I would have held a higher opinion on it. But having delved deeper into this film, it's just a horror movie. Yeah. So watch it if you want to, if if you like horror, you know, if you're a horror fanatic, you know, and you haven't seen it, check it out. But if, if you want to watch a good horror movie, there's other options. Yes. But it's on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, go check it out. It's free. Yep, I think that'll do it for us. Thank you to all our supporters out there. Yeah, thank you for listening. Um, We have a Patreon. If you're interested in joining the Patreon, we have a Patreon-exclusive podcast called The Witching Hour. Every time we record Furogenics, we also record The Witching Hour, which is just a more laid-back sort of look at whatever we're doing. This week we talked about Avatar 2. Yeah, and uh, Avatar 6 as well. Yep, so if you're interested in supporting us, go check out the Patreon. Otherwise, you can uh, reach out to us on 
Twitter, Instagram, YouTube uh, for behind the scenes photos and um, just whatever we feel like posting. Oh yeah, and send us your movie suggestions. Always taking suggestions. What do you want to see? Well, I think that's it for this week. Goodbye, everybody. See you guys. Mm-hmm.